It is Friday the 7th of October, quarter past seven in the morning. It's actually a bit earlier than I'd like to be at my laptop, ideally. I normally wake up kind of six, half six, but I try and have a bit of time without looking at a screen, read, have a lemon and ginger tea and a vitamin C tablet. Um, But I'm starting work a bit earlier today because I'm finishing work a bit earlier today because it's England, USA, and I'm really excited the game want to go down and be there early and drink it in it's one of those games it's like it's a friendly but it, it just doesn't feel like it's a friendly it does feel like some sort of super cup type final um which is going to be really really good it's also the start of my birthday it's not even birthday week it's it's not even birthday weekend it's a birthday week I've got all sorts planned and i'm really excited um the next episode up next Sunday will be kind of like a anyone I managed to speak to about any football that's happened as opposed to a guest the week after will be um, like a couple of people who've written a book so that'll be really really good um, just wanted to say a big thanks to Callum for coming on it was it was great um, I think the intro is going to start in a second uh, bloody the bloody back season three episode one of uh, the podcast is here. It's a good one. It's nice coming back to something you enjoy doing when you haven't done it for a while. Definitely felt a little bit rusty at points and I'm sure I'll get back into the swing of, of doing it all. Um, but really, really enjoyed it. Great to speak to Callum. Callum, thanks so much for coming on. Um, really, really enjoyed hearing about how you brought the book together. Um, and also just the topics like this is the sort of stuff that if you I say this to him at the end like if you care about football if you're interested in football then you'll really like this because um, there's so much that we can take away from it uh, enjoy the episode and I'll catch up with you soon Callum just before we started recording I asked you how you got into writing and you said this was basically the first thing that you'd ever written I guess first question like what what made you want to write the book and how did it come about yeah so Obviously, beforehand, I'd only really written to maybe university level, master's level stuff, and sort of more academic, sort of research write-ups. Um, I had the idea for the book maybe four or five years ago, um, sort of growing up in Heighton and being from Heighton, um, which I sort of reference in the book. I sort of always had the idea that maybe there was a hotbed and sort of what a hotbed was, um, with sort of growing up and people saying like, okay, Stephen Gerrard grew up there, David Nugent grew up there, that's where the Reid family lived, that sort of stuff. So I kind of always had an idea what a hotbed was. Um, and then, yeah, maybe four or five years ago, I read an article, I think it was maybe in the Times or the Guardian, about the Kinetic Foundation and all the work they were doing. Um, and I thought, okay, maybe there's something in this that, you know, is sort of South London, a bit of a hotbed maybe. Um, the more I sort of researched into it and the more players I found and the more people I spoke to, it sort of grew organically from there and I thought okay maybe there's something in this Um, I think this maybe could be a good sort of theme and topic for a book Um, so yeah it kind of just grew from there really and sort of the more I I, I sort of dug deep maybe um, the more sort of themes become apparent and yeah I sort of had the idea okay maybe let's do something on this maybe people need to know what's going on here yeah, definitely. I definitely felt that reading it. I was like, this is actually, this is stuff that anyone who is interested remotely in football should have in their mind when they're 
watching a game, thinking about their, I don't know, the the players, their teams are going to sign, thinking about creating mm-hmm. academy players, like all that sort of stuff that should be in there. I wonder if you have like, do you have like a working definition of what a hotbed is as a result of going through the process of writing it? Yeah, I, th- I think it, it, it's maybe tougher. There's obviously there's different types of hotbeds and obviously hotbeds in all different types of field, whether that might be like musical or um, sort of maybe, and, you know, I mentioned Silicon Valley in, towards the end of the book. Um, I suppose a hotbed is just a, an environment that is sort of maybe optimal for learning and development that sort of creates people in whatever sort of field that might be um, and sort of allows them to be at the, the sort of the highest level. Um, I think that would maybe be a bit of a, a work and sort of definition of a hotbed. Obviously, and, and that would go to, for different levels. Obviously, you would have maybe like an elite hotbed that sort of seem to be pushing people at the elite level. Uh, but then, you know, you, you wouldn't sort of discount hotbed because it's maybe not getting someone to the elite, but maybe it's sort of bubbling away underneath kind of thing and might be a hot, like a real hotbed in the years to come. So it's always sort of good to look out for those little little themes and, and hints maybe of where the next ones might be. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I felt that going through where there were, <clears throat> there were moments where I was like, oh, they've played for England, they've played for England. But just, I don't know, say Tammy Abraham hadn't had his England call up yet. It wouldn't mean that he wouldn't, it wouldn't mean that he hasn't come from a place that's developing players that are going to maybe go to that level. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and listen, there's probably plenty of South London players out there who haven't reached the elite level. There's probably plenty of players from other areas in the country who are doing, having amazing careers. Maybe it's not that elite level, maybe haven't got that call up and maybe not as, as, as noticed. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard when you're writing a book, maybe you can't write about everything. <laughs> You've got to kind of sort of be specific and sort of narrow down your, your vision, maybe and what you're talking about. And yeah, I think for this, I decided to look at the elite sort, sort of levels maybe. And that's maybe why I sort of focused in on South London and that sort of change. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense. I think that's also like, I suppose the way, particularly where I am in London anyway, like that's the way that we consume it. Like that's what, when we think about like top level football, we're thinking Premier League because there's so many yeah. Premier League teams. Um, like, you know, if someone was to, I don't know, get to a really, really high level, maybe playing championship, like if an area is consistently producing players that went on to the championship or, you know, went to play abroad second division, like yeah. would that still be a hotbed to you then? Yeah, I it's a tough one because again, it's what what level, what would be the cutoff of what you would say was a hotbed in terms of sort of level of talent. Plenty of places probably produce plenty of people, but whether they sort of go over that maybe threshold of sort of into that elite category might be different. And you know, I think so. Obviously, the book sort of charts that change from the heightened type north and type towns to sort of now South London and how that's changed. Heighton and these northern towns, I think, are still producing lots of players for lower league football, sort of lower football league. Um, you listen to any interviews, there's, there's lots. I think there's, a, I think Fleetwood, for example, have got quite a few uh, people from the field in the team and stuff. There seems to be a lot in those sorts of areas. So, you can, okay, maybe it's still a hop out of sorts for that level. But when we're looking at the sort of elite level, I just don't think it's there. Um, that's not to say it's not a hotbed for creating those type of type of players, but um, 
Yeah, it's it, it's a difficult one. It's what you would say as a hotbed for really like elite level talent. Um, and yeah, that that's what I sort of wanted to focus on because the elite is kind of what maybe we're interested in, sort of how to get those elite elite players. Yeah, and hopefully the books kind of explores that. Yeah, it definitely does. That that's probably the most fun part of it for me was like as as you go through the pages, it's like oh no, that name, recognize that name. Oh no, he plays for and like to think that all of them have come from. South London, like it's just it's just wicked. Um, had you spent time in South London before getting down to write the book? No, so only sort of within the research. Um, was the sort of first times that I'd been down there, and yeah, maybe every couple of months I'd go and spend a few days to to, to a week there, and go down meet 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 a few people, um, sort of get a bit of a feel for for the for the area and the surroundings. I think, as I mentioned, it's completely different to anything I experienced growing up. It's sort of a different type of area, different place, very diverse, lots of different types of people from different areas. And obviously the football, going to like the football camps and stuff that I went to is different to what maybe I would have been used to up here. So, yeah, that was definitely a good experience. And I learned a lot from going to those areas, spoke to a lot of good people. Um, and it was almost good to just be on the ground almost there's only so many sort of um you know articles or other books or academic type jails you can read i think you need to go in and sort of actually see what's happening for yourself and i think that's where you get the real the real research and real detail yeah massively any any standout figures that you met and you like really resonated with or you thought were like able to i guess clearly articulate why south london was producing the players it is yeah so i mean Harry at Kinetic would be sort of the first one who would jump out. Um, so, as I said, the article that I initially read was on Kinetic. Um, so I actually reached out to Harry first. He was the first person I reached out to, and he was, he was a, a massive help and really big help in the whole process, really. Um, obviously massively knowledgeable, um, an amazing coach, um, a good sort of vision for what he and his team wanted to do from the very beginning, obviously how they sort of came out of the Tottenham riots and stuff. Um, and yeah, he had a really good understanding of maybe what the South London sort of, the South London boys sort of wanted in terms of the football and where they wanted to get in the career, the best way to develop them and how to almost sort of reflect maybe their culture and their style and their football and sort of maybe mould that into the professional game. It was almost like he was bridging the gap kind of when maybe they were falling quite short he, and that maybe a league game was sort of um, maybe on the other side kind of thing he was able and his team were able to sort of right we need to do this this and this to get you there and they seem they were obviously very effective at doing that and um, so yeah he was a very interesting character and his team are really good his team are um, really helpful as well and obviously then it sort of grew you he sort of said okay speak to him speak to him speak you very sort of well connected so so that was always helpful Um, obviously the, the guys down at Lambeth Tigers as well who I mentioned they were really good obviously kinetic maybe sort of 16 plus um, age group Lambeth Tigers more maybe focused on on, on, on the youth side um, sort of youngsters 10, 11 maybe a bit younger Um. And that was really sort of community driven and sort of real sort of grassroots and where, you know, they are making a massive change and they're kind of getting to people at the start of their journey and, you know, helping them stay out of trouble, do the right thing, get into football, develop, learn and grow. And 
Yeah, again, I think the important thing is that these sort of clubs or whatever you'd want to call them are sort of reflecting um, the community and the people in the community and that everyone was welcoming and, um, you know, going there. The teams are very diverse, the clubs are diverse. Um, and, you know, it was just a, like a safe a safe space almost for, for these kids to go and play, learn, develop, grow with some, you know, amazing and talented coaches who were sort of maybe at the the highest level at that sort of um at that sort of level there in grassroots. Yeah. How how do they go about I don't know if you know, I know the Lambeth Tigers got the they've got like a facility as a result of that Nike, right? Like and Jaden Sancho went down and opened it. Did you get a sense of how these clubs go about like building like the infrastructure to actually allow them to run the programs that they do? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I, I went down to that facility. I spent a lot of time down there at the Jaden Sancho Court, which is it, it's fantastic, really good, really good. And that was amazing for them to um, have that open by Nike and stuff. I think I might be wrong, but I think the Lambert Tigers sort of that sort of came out again, kind of like the kinetic, almost out of like tragedy. I think there was a bit of a an issue at a training session or something where there was some sort of gang-related activity or maybe someone was stabbed in and around where they were training. Um, and I think then they realised, right, we need to change this. We need to sort of get our own facility and make this safe. Um, so I think they made that sort of court in, in Myersfield their sort of home then and their base. Um, and then obviously I think the, the coaches and the guys down at Lambeth Tigers are, to me, they seem like they were almost like pillars of the community. They were sort of very involved in the community. They were... Um, grassroots coaches they're also kind of scouts I think they were also kind of uh, maybe almost like community leaders kind of thing um, so I think their sort of infrastructure and building sort of came from that and the fact that they were so sort of strong in their community and um, obviously they got that safe sort of space and place to train that that was their centre and sort of everyone sort of came to them and then and then I think they sort of grew it out um, from there. Mm. What are the similarities between like South London and and the Northwest where you, <clears throat> where you talk about a little bit, like what, what do you feel like those places have in common? Yeah. So I think that sort of generally people are struggling. Um, it's not maybe the most affluent areas. Um, maybe, um, you know, broken homes, that sort of thing. And sort of just home life isn't maybe as easy as it is in other areas of the country. There may be unemployment and those sort of things. And um, secondly, obviously, just a massive like football culture and um, people loving football, the kids loving football, maybe not seeing much of a, a path for themselves academically, sort of to progress through maybe like secondary school to sixth form to university and, you know, go and get sort of an office job and um, maybe not seeing that or the sort of pathway for themselves in that, but then sort of choosing sport and football to to sort of as as a way out, I think, as as I say in the book, um, they would definitely be two sort of um, main um, sort of commonalities between the two, which which I think is almost a common theme between most topheads. <coughs> Sorry, that this struggle and the resilience built through these areas allows for the sort of creation of talent and the development of talent. I think is definitely a commonality between hotbeds. Um, and yeah, I think South London takes that and runs 
kind of to, to allow it to now be the um, sort of hotbed that it is. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm spending a bit more time down at Crystal Palace. I coach for the foundation. So I'm there with like coaching the goalies on the academy pathway on the, the youth side. Um, and I'm like at the academy a little bit more and more this season. Hopefully I'll be there a bit more. And like you do just like you look around and everywhere it's South London and proud or like it's a, you know, the the pictures that are up or the, I don't know, even like when you actually chat to some of the coaches or the people around the club who just like, oh yeah, they've been here since they were, I don't know, under whatever, really, really young. Yeah. And they're now, you know, they might be with the 18, some of them might be with the 23s. Um, but that sense of like, we're gonna like find the kids that are from this area and get them in. And it's funny, actually, when I had my interview, I'll never forget this. One of them said to me, like, he asked me about like my ideas on football development. I can't remember what I said, something about improving players in a good environment, something like that. And he said, that's great to hear. We're not trying to find the next Wambasaka. We're not trying to find the next Wilfred Zaha. And I remember thinking like, why not? Like, why yeah. would you not? try and do that and then <laughs> and then job done yeah the way that crystal palace have done it is is one that i imagine clubs are looking to to try and to try and replicate have you got a, a sense of like who the clubs are that are maybe looking to them and thinking we we fancy that we could have a go um yeah i, I think i don't think any club could rule themselves out to maybe following that sort of um, blueprint almost of, of what um, Crystal Palace are doing um, hopefully I think I think the book and, and the lessons and the research I've done is maybe a big opportunity for clubs to to learn from it and, and see how, how we can take the lessons from Crystal Palace or, or the hotbed and see how we can sort of implement those things in, into what we're doing um, you know, I, I'd, be, I'd go into clubs and, and help them with that but um, I think the lessons are there and the blueprint is there and it's a big opportunity for other clubs to follow suit. There's, as we said before, there's, I'm sure all areas have got the ability to sort of become a hotbed and sort of create this talent. It's whether they're taking advantage of it um, to, to the highest level, you know, and obviously, you know, you look at what like Man City are doing and how, how they have sort of completely revamped the community around the stadium and stuff. And, I don't know if that's in their mind to maybe, you know, look, look at things there and how we can sort of boost the sort of surrounding area and sort of take advantage of that. And um, you obviously see a lot of clubs have these community type schemes and um, how they use those to their advantage that they could do. Um, recruitment and looking in the right places, definitely. Um, and just taking advantage of what's around. And as obviously, as I say in the book, a lot of clubs sort of moved away from their own community and sort of went out into the sticks almost and sort of separated themselves and the training grounds are maybe hard to get to. They're not sort of central. They're not in the inner city, area, inner city areas. Um, and I think something's got to give. I think Chelsea obviously sort of went out into the sticks, but they consciously decided, right, because we're out there, we need to have people everywhere in London. And we have, we'll have a minibus that goes and pick picks kids up from everywhere and you've seen the success that's had because they sort of found a solution to moving out other clubs would, would need to do things like that um, in terms of clubs you might be well placed now that Newcastle have got all this investment mm. you'd hope they just didn't 
splash it on foreign talent. You know, the, the northeastern, you know, all those areas, the Walton Boys Club, all, all those type of places have produced great talent over the years. Could they now look to invest in their own community and look to see how maybe they can bridge that gap to become, um, you know, that sort of powerful hotbed again? That, that might be interesting to see how that develops over the next, um, you know, three to five years. But yeah, I don't think any club could rule itself. I don't think, oh no, there's no talent here. Um, they might as well shut down their academy straight away if, if they're going to think that. Um, but yeah, hopefully through the lessons and stuff and maybe what might come out of this book, there's a big opportunity for clubs there to to learn and maybe yeah, start to change some things that they're doing sort of in-house um, in the way they are, you know, training, coaching, the sort of philosophy almost, but then also how they can maybe look to branch out a bit and um, sort of get that link with the community again. Because obviously, as you've said, Crystal Palace are fantastic. Area. The, the whole South London and Proud thing, um, there's, there's, there's something there, I think, in just even in having that, um, that almost ties the community straight away. Um, and then also, having, they have a, what I sort of noticed is that they have a lot of people on the ground. And, you know, all the Lambeth Tigers guys, they're all Crystal Palace scouts, coaches, academy people. Um, yeah, they seem to have sort of a real network at the community level, um, which seems to be working for them. And yeah, I think also just as a bit of an additional point, um, I think what you see is when you mentioned the Wambasakas and Zahars there and stuff, and now Eze and people like that, these young lads from South London are seeing themselves represented in the Crystal Palace team, um, which I think is, is always handy. I think to have those those role models and people to look up to to think, okay, if Sahar can do it and he's from my estate and he grew up like me and hey, whatever, then maybe I can do it as well. Yeah, massively. I think like that this like they're they're first team players, but they're stars for the first team. Like yeah, that, that's a that's that's really, really something. Um I want to make sure we have some time to talk about the coaching and the philosophy side of things because I'm I'm particularly interested in that. But you mentioned the like the Northeast before and that bit on Newcastle. In the England women's team, like the Northeast is like massive for mm. producing England internationals. Like I don't off the top of my head, Jill Scott, Beth Mead. Lucy Bronze, and there's someone else who I'm missing. Um, like, uh, do you, is there like, do you have any ideas as to why that may be creating elite level players on the women's side, but maybe not in the men's side? Yeah, I mean, it, I can't say it's something I've looked into too deeply. It's it's interesting, and and I'm, I think even if you're sort of there's also a bit of a almost like a Liverpool contingent as well in that England sort of national team, um, Nikita Paris and, and others. Um, so yeah, maybe it's interesting that maybe could you argue that the women's game is obviously just maybe a bit sort of delayed almost from the men's game in, in where sort of it's at in levels. So is it maybe just following that trend that okay, the northeast and northwest maybe aren't doing it at the men's game now because things have maybe moved on. Um, and they're in sort of a different realm now. But is the women's game kind of just sort of following that trend almost? And, you know, those, those you know, girls, I assume, will have grown up with the family around them and um, sort of being able to talk about and see those those hotbeds that have passed. Um, and, yeah, maybe it's just that the, the women's game there sort of just followed on from the men's game and, 
Um, maybe the some infrastructure there um, for the hotbed to, to, to be grown in, in the women's game and in women's football. Um, obviously, those areas of football mad, just like as a, a as a baseline, there's sort of there's a big football culture there anyway. Um, so yeah, I'm sure that would have had an effect. But <clears throat> you know, maybe as the women's game. Um, develops and you're obviously getting more foreign influence in the women's game now with, with the money coming in and transfers and things maybe you will see a similar kind of pattern as to what has happened in the men's game I mean as I say I've, it's not something I've looked too deeply into um, but that would maybe make sense in the fact that okay if we're talking so that in, if we're talking 20-30 years ago where the men's game was pretty um, at, the, at the Premier League level it was sort of there wasn't much foreign influence at the, at the time, sort of beginnings of the you know, Premier League and stuff. Maybe that's where the women's game has been in the last five years. Now with more money, more foreign influence, um, maybe you'll start to be, see a bit of a shift and maybe the women's game might go down to that sort of um, that South London type areas where all is, is just a bit different. Um, obviously, I know there was a lot of talk over the summer um, of the diversity of the, the women's team. Um, which 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 is an interesting maybe theme and, and something to look into. Um, my prediction would be that there'll be a good few South London girls who will be reaching that national team in the next 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 three years, three to five years, um, and maybe beyond. That seems to be the feeling that I was getting when I was down there. There was sort of the the way a cluster of, of girls, um, sort of training at the level of the sort of elite sort of youth boys where. Um, so yeah, I mean that would be interesting to see if if that follows the same pattern as, as the men seems to have had in terms of the hotbeds, but definitely something to look out for. Yeah, I think something else to like there, there's a <clears throat> documentary on BT Sport. It's called South of the River. That yeah. I think like I I read the book and then watched that, and I thought that was a that was a good thing to do. Like they complemented each other really really nicely. And there's a couple of bits in there about. Um, I think her name's Sean at Millwall and she's talking about like kind of where they're where they're hoping to be and where they think some of those girls can get to in the next yeah. in the next few years. Um if if we like have a just a little chat about cage football and coaching mm. and like different types of practices, because that's the sort of stuff where I like in the last chapter where I don't think this is spoiling anything or giving it away. You basically like propose the idea that like clubs should implement cage football into their academies and have kids yeah. playing like unstructured games where they mm -hmm. referee themselves do all that sort of stuff while the coaches work with other players on whatever they want to do yeah like i'm all over that i think that's <clears throat> i think i think that would be brilliant um how do you think that sort of idea or those sorts of ideas would be received by coaches working in those environments day in day out yes it I think it would be a tough one. I think there'd be a mixed review, I think, almost. Um, it would be a change. It'd be a big change to the sort of very structured, orderly nature of the academy trainer, maybe. And, you know, some have maybe criticised it of maybe being too robotic kind of thing. You know, just creating the same sort of player to robots to just do drills and then sort of progress them through that. Um, so there might be some challenges. You know, as you've said, you 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 would be all for it. I'm sure there'd be coaches who'd be all for it. It might be a challenge in the fact that maybe they might feel they're not coaching. Um, but I think I think there's ways around that, and I think it would be about getting the balance right. You know, you they couldn't just play 
cage football all day every day and expect on a Saturday to to be able to go and play on on the grass pitch eleven aside of course. Um, it'd be about having that mix, but there's definitely something in that unstructured play of that chaotic play and the cage football type thing. Um, you know, there's definitely something there in those small sided games. Again, as I, as I'm saying it, it, there's an opportunity there for clubs to to start to bring that into their their sort of schedule, if you like, and the different age groups and, and seeing how it goes and getting that balance right in it. You know, it, it might start as I don't know half an hour at the beginning of training or something. I don't know. And then you can sort of maybe implement it a bit more. Um, but yeah, the, the, there's there's something there for the clubs to latch on to. And, you know, maybe the first club to do it might, might gain an advantage if, if one was to sort of um, go, okay, we'll, we'll take a punt on this kind of thing and see where it takes us. Um, they, they might gain an advantage. But there's, there's definitely something there. And as I said, you couldn't do it and then have the coach, you couldn't do it and have the coach sort of in the cage almost and saying, do this, do this, do this, because that's not cage football. Um, the coach would have to be comfortable with sort of stepping aside almost and letting them get on with it. Um, then maybe after you could do little things, um, little sort of reflection points. And that. I, I don't know how, how, the, how, how each club would feel more comfortable doing it. But as I say, it's something that, that we could help with and yeah the lessons from the book would hopefully you know go go some way to helping a club sort of implement that sure like you already they already film all of training anyway film the game find the yeah. bits where you think oh there's something there that we can take and then like create a practice around it like I'm, i think that'd be great i think also like there's there's always this i have this quite a lot with some of the coaches i work with who are more like you know Let's let's get a game going within the first minute, two minutes of training, because then yep. ten minutes in, we've had ten minutes of a game, and now we can look at what's come up and we can we can coach it. Then there are other coaches who say that's quite dangerous. Don't let the game be the teacher. Like yep. we know as coaches what we want to try and get out. Blah blah blah. I think that's a fair discussion debate to have. <laughs> there's there's no question that like there's room for more unstructured stuff, and you can then coach the bits that you want to coach as a result of seeing what happens. Like to me, that is a big part of what coaching is. Yeah, exactly. And obviously every coach will have their own philosophy and their own ideas. And, you know, the club itself will have its own ideas of how it wants to develop the players. Um, but as you say, there's, it is kind of needed. You, you do maybe need that little bit of the instructor playing. Okay. They might be doing it already in, in, in sorts, but maybe not to like the street level. Uh, kind of thing and the worry is that these kids are in the academies almost every night of the week for a couple of hours they're getting home getting changed going back out coming home doing some homework having a tea going to bed you, you almost get like a, a double whammy effect of they're, they're at the academy doing this sort of structured robotic type training and not the unstructured play but then by being there, they're also not able to be out playing with the mates in the street. So the kind of the the losing out on on that sort of side of of the game and of life. And obviously, football at the weekend and when they play is played on grass on a big pitch with proper goals and against however many a side it might be at that age group. So you do need that. There'll be no getting away from it. Listen, the cage football isn't the be all and end all. I don't think. Um, but in terms of just the development and as a learning environment it's obviously powerful and effective you would just have to implement it correctly 
um, which which might take time. It might take some sort of um, planning originally to sort of how how you would implement that. Um, but as I said, maybe the club that was brave enough to, to do it first might get the, the, the real benefits. Because if we're looking at Crystal Palace um, and their success, um, yeah, a lot of those players will have been playing that um, anyway. And interestingly, if you look at some of the, the South London players who have come through, like Adam Ola-Luckman, Joe Rebo, those type of players, they weren't actually at academies until quite late on. So they were getting all of this street type training you know a lot nearly every night and we're probably getting a couple of nights one night a week grassroots training and then playing on a Saturday so yeah I think there needs to be a balance hey trouble isn't the be all and end all um, but yeah th- th- there's something there yeah there's definitely an interesting piece I think also to explore around like how much time you could spend training on great pristine surfaces versus also getting time on on, on in other environments um lastly i wondered well i guess i wanted to give you the chance to just talk about how great wayne rooney was for like a minute 90 seconds given that you're an everton fan and he you mentioned him in the book as like the last maybe street footballer to like be an elite level player yes obviously i think wayne rooney is maybe one of the just the most naturally maybe gifted and sort of talented English footballers that we've had in the last, I don't know how, however many um, years. Obviously, people sort of liken them to to Gascoigne in that sort of childlike sort of street football sort of. I think if any of us wanted to play football, we would kind of play it like Rooney. If we, if we could choose how to play it, we would kind of be like Rooney. Um, if we could be at that sort of elite level. Obviously, he had sort of almost everything. Obviously, in the book, I mentioned he was maybe the last sort of street football of that mould in terms of the sort of aggression and um, the way he'll play sort of rough, hard. He'd go and hit someone hard. One minute, next minute, he would be using quick feet to take it around somebody. His finishing, his touch, everything about him was, um, was just amazing. Just overall, he was, I don't know, maybe the most complete footballer we've seen. Um, and he was one of those players that got you out, out of your seat, um, which is obviously exciting. It's what you want. That is street football again. Um, it's exciting. It, it kind of, I mean, I, t- I, t- I tweeted yesterday watching the Man City game that the way they move the ball made you makes you want to go out and play football. Rooney was that type of player. You, you watched him and you were almost like, no matter your age, you were kind of like, I want to go out and kick a ball here. It was just, it's that, it's that effect. Um, but yeah, I think he's definitely somebody who had been sort of his talent of being owned on the, on the, um, on the street. Yeah. Obviously, grew up in a tough area, which obviously had a, had an effect and given that sort of hardened um, kind of side of him. But yeah, I mean, what, what a player! I think we've strangely, it almost feels like he's underrated. Yeah, agree. Doesn't really get the he respect is. that he should have got. It's like yes, yeah. To to retire as Manchester United's top goal scorer and England's top goal scorer, I mean, is insane. But... Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal. Um. Carl, that's brilliant. Thanks so much for your time. 